May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's bow our heads together for an opening word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning as your people. You have given us your word that has been preserved for centuries, translated into our language, so that we are able to read, study, comprehend the word of God, your word to us. I pray for your help this morning. Open our eyes to your word. Condition our hearts that we might receive your word and that we might apply it to our lives. Show us Christ this morning. Show us Christ in the pages of this book. Father, to you be all the glory, honor, dominion, and power forever and ever. Amen. A couple of introductory notes on the book of 1 Peter. The author, the Apostle Peter, known uh, as the Apostle with a foot-shaped mouth during his time as one of Christ's twelve, being in the inner circle of three, the three most or closest disciples within the body of twelve, Peter, James, and John, known for being impulsive, often speaking without thinking, speaking first, thinking later. Maybe you know somebody like that. Um, Jesus would call him blessed at one place, and as recorded in Matthew fifteen seventeen, and then by verse twenty three, he will call him Satan. Get behind me, Satan! Indirect, indirectly. After Pentecost, Peter would become the prominent apostle among the twelve. As you'd read in Acts chapter 2, when the fire from heaven had fallen, the, those that were in the upper room with the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter would address the questioning crowd who were asking, you know, what's happening? These men are a- acting like drunkards. It's the wrong time of day. And... Uh, Peter would stand up and point to the Old Testament. What is happening now is a fulfillment of what was spoken beforehand. Peter writes in this epistle to elect exiles, we see. Some translations have the order of... uh, or the descriptive order of these people differently, but these are both Jewish converts uh, having been displaced many, many centuries before. Uh, The first exile which took place 
722 BC, known as the Assyrian exile, when Assyria carried off Israel into captivity for good. The second exile would be known as the Babylonian exile. Uh, There were two deportations out of Israel, one in 597 and then 11 years later in 586 BC uh, under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar. And even though some returned for the rebuilding of the temple during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, many, many Jews remained in exile even to the time of Peter's letter. Uh, Many Jews not living within Israel's borders. And also addressed to Gentile converts who are also living in exile in, in a similar fashion. The Jews were in physical exile. These Gentiles are also in exile, which by definition this, mean, this word means to be displaced, to be in a temporary place. You're not home. And so in that sense, both these Gentiles in these areas who were part of the Christian church and the extended Christian church that has continued through the centuries and will continue till the end of time because of Christ's promise. Uh, We are known as strangers, sojourners, referring to people living in a temporary place that is not their permanent home. Pontus, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. These are um, regions that you would see, you wouldn't see it on a, a modern map, but these regions are in modern day Turkey, the northwest of Israel, uh, up on the Mediterranean, on the North Shore. And so these are the recipients of this letter. So we can also rest assured this morning, as Christian exiles, this is for us as well. And the situation that Peter is addressing is incredibly timely and strategic. The church at this time, uh, which is in or under the dominion of Rome is facing tremendous persecution. The Emperor Nero is a basically a madman, uh, unpredictable as was or as were many of the emperors, cruel, heartless, unafraid to eliminate whoever would pose a threat to their rule as emperor. And so the Christians became a target of Nero. And what is said historically in AD 64, Rome was set on fire. Uh, Historians would say Nero was the one who should have been held responsible. But he would shift the blame to the Christian community, saying things like, the Christians are mischievous, they're superstitious, uh, you know, they could do something like this. And so the Christians, because of this, would become his targets uh, and would viciously and relentlessly persecute the Christian community, employing torture methods like crucifixion, for one, uh, Christ died via persecution. This is a method that was perfected by the Romans. They they were experts at execution. They also allowed victims to be ripped apart by savage dogs. They would drape an animal hide over a Christian and then let these dogs loose on them to destroy and rip them apart. 
and they would find enjoyment and entertainment watching this. Nero would also use Christians as human torches. Uh, When the day came to a close and darkness settled, Christians would be strung up on poles and, and they would set fire to them and they would provide the light they would need. Just unthinkable cruelties uh, used by Nero. The Emperor Nero also um, responsible for the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. Peter died via crucifixion. History suggests he died crucified upside down. Uh, And Paul was beheaded both under Nero between A.D. 64 and 68, likely. So this is the situation that Peter's addressing. Obviously, he's still alive. Um, they believe First Peter's written probably around A.D. 64, right after the fire, right after the persecution set in, and the Christians were targeted a timely letter from the prominent apostle Peter to the church. Just a couple of notes on the structure of 1 Peter that you might find helpful. One common trend in the epistles, if you pay attention when you're reading, you'll notice this, that very often the writer will... Uh, expound on a truth about God, a doctrine. He will lay it out and then in response he will give an application. What do we do with this truth? How do we respond? What difference does it make in our lives? How do we live according to what we've just learned? And a common keyword to use, or to look for rather, is the word therefore. Sometimes you'll see a truth being set forth and then therefore we do this or we respond this way or that way. It connects a premise to its conclusion. The epistles are full of those things. You can even see it outlined in some epistles especially the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, where the beautiful truths of God's salvation in an individual's life are expounded, and then you go to chapter 3, 4, and 5, and 6, and there's a boatload of practical application laid out for the Christian in light of the truths they have learned. First Peter, or the whole book of First Peter, is no different. If you look at chapter one, uh, this, this I say generally, we can see the truth about God's operations in redeeming people. Then you go to chapter two, and you'll see the word. I'm using the English Standard Version. The translators use the word "so." Some translations use the word therefore, which is the same thing. It's now we've learned what we've learned, we've read what we've read in chapter 1. Now, how does this play out? So, chapter 2, you'll see, therefore, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, because of what was said in chapter 1. And so, what we can see here is that Peter, writing to persecuted believers, will start by teaching them truths about God and his operations in salvation. And then he will use that to encourage them to remain steadfast in the midst of intense persecution. So what I'd like to do with the text this morning 
is to divide it up into four main points. Four main points as we walk through nine verses, or the first nine verses. But before I do that, I'd just like to uh, throw out a word that maybe we don't use all the time, but an extremely important theological word, regeneration. Regeneration, sometimes we use regeneration... We use regeneration, and when we use the word, we think of conversion, the time when we uh, cross the threshold from death to life, and we uh, kind of isolate it to that, but regeneration is much more than that. It includes the time of conversion, what we, the scripture refers to as the new birth, but it is much broader. Regeneration encompasses the start to the end of the Christian's salvation. And so, a, I think one of the best um, explanations in Scripture of this concept w- would be found in Romans 28 to 30, where I'm just going to summarize without going there. Uh, First of all, we could say we, Christians, we were saved. We were saved. I use a past tense, and I would use no tense if I could. But since we are creatures of time, and our language is bound by time, we, we can't explain eternity because our salvation was secured in past, e- eternity past. Sorry. Which there's no time to, to really categorize when that took place. This we know as predestination and election where God elected his church Uh, before the foundation of the world. Before time began, this was secured. And so I say we were saved. Yes, it is past, but it's not within the confines of time. Secondly, we have been saved. I'm using that in the present perfect tense, which is also past, but it's, uh, it's a past or expressing something that happened in the past with present consequences. So we have been saved. Now I'm referring to the new birth or quickening. Ephesians 2, some translations use the word, uh, you who are dead in trespasses and sins, God has quickened. And so upon conversion, you were a dead sinner, or prior to conversion. You were a dead sinner. You were spiritually dead. You were unable to respond to God. You were unable to seek God. But when you were saved, you were made alive where God gave you life. And you became alive and you became a new creation in Christ. The third phase, if you will, or dimension, is that we are being saved. Not in the sense that we're trying to earn our way to heaven and hopefully we'll get to a place of of salvation eventually, but we are being saved in the present active as in God is sanctifying us. That's that word sanctification. It's used differently in Scripture depending on which context, but we're referring to the molding and shaping that God does in every single believer's life. In fact, it's so certain that if you're a Christian, that you will be molded and shaped. It was decreed by God that that would take place in your life. It's a pivotal part of regeneration. And then lastly, we will be saved. Future tense. We will be saved. We look forward to the completion of our salvation, which is known as glorification. If you read Romans chapter 8, I think it's in verse 30, 
It it uh, describes the Christian's glorification as if it had already happened in the past tense. That's how certain this is. And so you can't help but see all these, all four dimensions of regeneration in this text. And I'm not forcing it into the text. You'll see it in there. And so the first point or section I'd like to cover is the operation of God's election. My mouth only gets dry when I'm nervous. The operation of God's election. Look at verse 2, where Peter, addressing his audience, refers to them as elect. Elect exiles. I know this word strikes fear into many a heart these days, but that does not give us a reason to ignore it or pretend it's not there. It's there. In fact, if you look in the even in just the epistles of the New Testament, you'll find this word elect, which in the Greek is eklektos, meaning called out, chosen, separated, uh, is used ten times in the epistles in reference to Christians. Once in reference to angels, and twice to refer to Christ himself as chosen of God. The wording, if you look at, uh, I'm not sure what translation you're using, but it, it might appear a little bit difficult to know when Peter says, according, what is he referring to? Uh, he, re- he connects according with elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God is how the King James Version translates, brings those two concepts together. Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The New English translation reads this way, to those temporarily residing abroad, and then lists the five regions, who are chosen. And so that gives provides a bit of clarity for us. Now the question is, how did God go about electing individuals for salvation and for what purpose? And Peter gives those to us. Follow the order and also note the involvement of all three persons of the Trinity in this work of election. The first statement here, according to the foreknowledge of God. That's in verse 2. Elect, chosen, separated, called out according to the foreknowledge of God. The Greek word prognosis, meaning forethought or pre-arrangement in simple terms. Something decided or arranged beforehand. In eternity past, God chose a people to be the bride for His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read the book of Ephesians, for example, you'll see bride, the bride of Christ, uh, spoken about. Uh, That bride was chosen by the Father in eternity past for the Son as an inheritance and those who belong to the bride are not, do not belong because of merit or being good or uh, exceptional human beings. But this is an expression of God's infinite grace. Remember, salvation is not primarily about us. First, it is about God. God saved us for himself. He didn't save you to give you a good life and to give you a 5,000 square foot house with a three car garage. He saved you to glorify Himself. 
That's why he saves individuals. And that's why God elected the church in eternity past, an expression of his grace and in order to glorify himself. Christ will ultimately be married to his bride, the church at that great future marriage supper of the Lamb. Then the union will be consummated. We will be joined with Christ for eternity to be in his presence, to be his bride in a spiritual sense. Much like marriage, so Paul also writes in Ephesians, marriage is a picture of, the, of Christ and the church. Now we have been betrothed to Christ and we await that ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb. We have been elected by the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification means to be set apart for a special purpose which there's, you can see the natural con- connection to eclectos or to elect. Just be set apart. And Peter accredits or credits the sanctification to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sets apart these individuals for salvation. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, concerning the new birth that we are baptized into one body by one spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, in the work of regeneration and conversion, takes an individual, in the spiritual sense, takes them out of this world, the kingdom of darkness, places them in the kingdom of light, into that one body, the universal church, the body of Jesus Christ, the bride. Jesus said in John chapter 10 concerning the effectual call of the gospel, those who are his sheep, which are also those who belong to the bride, they hear my voice. Jesus doesn't call in vain. When Jesus calls, his sheep hear his voice. And what do they do? They follow me. And there's a promise connected to that. And they will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. Amen. These individuals, called out, elected by the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience. Here's a purpose statement, if you will. For obedience. And this is the only visible evidence of our election. There's no other evidence. We don't know who has been called. It's not our business to try and figure that out. We have been given the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. The saving belongs to God. So though we're accused constantly of trying to label people uh, as elect or non-elect, that's nonsense. That is not our job. But that doesn't mean this is not in Scripture. This is our conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus didn't save us so that we could look forward to inheriting a few square feet of heaven. Like so many people, they view Christianity as a ticket to heaven or some fire insurance. There's a specific purpose for our salvation. That is that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is also decreed beforehand. Check Romans 28 to 30. Obedience. That is what it is. We obey Christ. 
That's one of the proofs of salvation in 1 John. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? There's a contradiction. You identify yourself with me, and yet your actions prove otherwise. You see, Christ is more than just the Savior. He is also our Lord. We must submit to His authority. That's one of the proofs of if you're a Christian or not. Obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling of His blood. The foundation, or one great foundation block of our salvation. His atoning blood. We couldn't be saved without the atonement of Jesus Christ. Christians were pre-appointed to be the recipients of the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death. Because like all people, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we sin, we accumulate debt against the holy God, who is a God of wrath and hates sin. Sin must be paid for. God will not just dismiss it because you look like you're sorry. Your sin must be paid for. And so either Christ will pay it with His atoning blood and sacrificial death on the cross, or we will pay for our own sins eternally in the lake of fire. Sin must be paid for. Christians are recipients of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. One of the things that is so common in newly converted individuals, they go around proclaiming, my sins are forgiven and I know it. There's no visible proof. No one could tell by looking at them, other than their facial expression, that their sins were forgiven. Why do they keep proclaiming that? Because they have believed And upon believing in Christ, their sins have been atoned for. And forgiven the penalty paid for by Jesus Christ. The second theme in 1 Peter chapter 1, found in verses 3 to 5, we're going to see the operation of God's quickening. I know that's a word we don't use generally. I chose it because it, uh, it so nicely defines the life-giving aspect of conversion. To bring to life. Peter, it seems in mid-sentence, Uh, after the benedictive statement of goodwill to the church, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. That is a common uh, way the the apostles addressed uh, their audiences in their letters, a benedictive statement, a goodwill statement to the church to give them, uh, to bless them. Uh, He utters this phrase in praise and adoration to the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins his next uh, sentence. And this is not the same blessed that is used in the Beatitudes, where Jesus lists off these different types of people uh, in the kingdom. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not the same blessed... Uh, that blessed could be translated as happy. Happy are those who uh, have, have that kind of identity or that kind of outlook. But rather, 
praise. This is praise or a blessed, uh, which is common in the Hebrew or in Hebrew culture to bless God. Look in the Psalms and you'll, you'll see that. Blessing God is common and done often in prayer. And Peter does that. He blesses God in, in, in a uh, worshipful um, attitude. Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ. He praises the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And he expresses this praise to God the Father in light of the truths he is about to expound. And so as he's thinking about expounding these truths of God's causing us to be born again, he begins by praising the Father according to his great mercy. I'd like us to see that. Why and how, or on which account, is because of God's mercy that He has caused us to be born again. Mercy is when punishment or due punishment is withheld. Grace is when something is given that is not deserved. And so, Peter inserts this concept of mercy that why did God grant us the ability to become born again? And Peter uh, credits that to God's mercy. God withheld judgment from us and granted us grace in allowing us to participate in this great salvation. He has caused us to be born again. God is the source and cause of spiritual transformation. I think it's no accident that both Peter here and the Apostle John, uh, recording the words of Christ, so the credit goes to Jesus Christ, in chapter 3 of John, talking about the new birth, that it is compared to uh, physical birth. And when somebody is born... There's this concept of new life. Death is the conclusion of life. Birth is the beginning of life. And so fittingly, our conversion, if you will, I know there's different words used, but that time in which, and we talked about this earlier, when you come to faith in due time, one day something happens and God brings about the right circumstances and the right environment and the right person, the right scripture verse. As before, you read the Bible day after day, it meant nothing to you. One day, you look into the Word of God and it's like you've never read the Bible before in your life and you can't unglue your eyes from scripture and you're, you don't know what happened to you. That was my testimony. I was saved and I just had no clue what exactly took place. I love Christ. Why? I don't know. Something happened. Couldn't explain it at the time. It was a new birth. I was dead. I became alive. Note the key preposition, excuse me, prepositional phrases in the rest of the sentence. Uh, Phrases that begin with the word to, the word through, and to again. The first one is that God has caused us to be born again to, meaning to what end? To a living hope, an earnest expectation of a certain future reality. Is not this hope that is like uh, the hope that our hockey team had this year. We hope we're going to win the next game. We have no clue if we'll win. Um, this is an expectation of a certain future reality. We're not just 
hoping that we're going to receive an inheritance from God that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for us. We don't know for sure, but we're hoping. We're positive. That's not the hope Peter is talking about. This is a fixed hope in a certain future reality. We are not doubting what God has promised at all. And one of the attributes of God is God's unchangeableness. God's unchangeableness. He is unable to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's said of Jesus Christ, referring to his attribute of his unchangeable character and nature. He does not change. And so the promises that he gives do not change. They are there. They are permanent and secure. Through, Peter writes, as to how, how was this brought about? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Meaning our spiritual resurrection is patterned after the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christ was dead. Completely dead. Not just unconscious. And the cool air of the tomb revived him again. He was dead. And on that third day, he rose from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. And he walked out of that tomb. The stone didn't need to be rolled away. He walked through the stone because he had put on a resurrection body. And so our spiritual resurrection patterned after Christ's own resurrection. We were dead, we came to life. That's resurrection. And so some people call uh, claim to resurrect people from the dead. Without lying, you can walk around and say, I've been resurrected from the dead. I'm proof. We can all say that as Christians. To, there's another preposition, to what end? To an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it cannot corrupt. It's permanent. It won't rust. It won't mold. It won't rot. It's undefiled, meaning it's perfect and pure in every possible way. It's not stained or tainted by sin or the fallen nature. The curse it is, is beyond that. It is uh, perfect and pure. It's unfading. It's not going to disappear. It doesn't lose its intensity. doesn't lose its value. And where is it? It is reserved in heaven or kept in heaven for us. This is an expression of God calling us into sonship. We become sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. As you see in Romans chapter 8 verse 17, we're heirs of God, meaning we will receive an inheritance from God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ or fellow heirs. Christ being the elder brother receives the double inheritance. We also share in the inheritance by the free grace of God. How can the believer be assured of the realization of this promise? From our, from our point of view, from our part, God has made his promise secure. What about us? Peter answers that. He says, this inheritance kept in heaven for you. And then he shifts back to their identity. You who are guarded Verse 
excuse me. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If it was up to us, brothers and sisters, to keep ourselves plugged in to the promises of God, every last one of us would fail. You see, our salvation originates from God. It has been given by God, and He will also keep it. He will keep you saved in simple terms. That's what this means. Guarding, a synonym of protect. He will protect us in the faith. Rather, through faith. Peter says, we are being guarded for future salvation. I'm paraphrasing, through faith. Faith is what connects us to God. A simple way. Faith enables us to grasp or embrace God's promises. And so God, as one commentator says, He excites faith in us. Allowing us to grab hold of those promises. If there's no faith, there's no hope either. We don't trust what God has promised. There's no future hope. There's no continual hope in the Christian's life. By faith, salvation is both received and kept. One commentator writes, As the inheritance hath been preserved, so are the heirs guarded. Both the inheritance and the heirs, the ones who receive the inheritance. They are preserved. So, excuse me, neither shall it fail them, nor it they. And so, the inheritance will not fail, and us claiming the inheritance will not fail either. Why? Because God has secured and pledged to make it happen. Ready to be revealed at the last time. This salvation that we're talking about. Ready to be revealed at the last time. When this lifelong, well, that's it's much bigger than that. For us, it's lifelong. For God, it includes the boundless, or the, the infiniteness, infinity, rather, of eternity. But when it will be brought to a completion, it will be final. Thirdly, like I'm going to have to speed up. The operation of providential trials is our third theme. Look at verse 6 and 7. Peter has established the foundation and the operation of God's redemption in his people. Now he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. How hard is it for us to rejoice when we see this? the truths in verses 2 to 5. If you're not rejoicing, something's wrong. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The teaching of these verses, you'll notice, they're situated in a frame. We finished up verse 5 that already looks ahead to the future hope. 
It looks ahead to what we have in the future. And then Peter inserts this, now for a little while, referring to the time we spend here on earth as sojourners and pilgrims. We are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of a heavenly country. You're a temporary resident. You're an alien in every sense of the word. You don't belong here. We belong in heaven. That's where we're going. But Peter brings everything down to a practical level. But Okay, what about now? We see this hope. We see what God has done and will do. And we rejoice. We're, we're filled with joy and expectation. But what about these three score and ten years here on planet Earth? And so within that frame, there is the reality of the present trials of persecution and its purpose. The believers may have thought, we have all this in Christ. We've been saved. We're rejoicing in our salvation. What happened? Why are we going through these difficulties? Why are we being persecuted? Our lives are being threatened. Our fellow brothers and sisters are being tortured and killed. Is this Christianity? Is this what we're supposed to be experiencing as Christians? That would be a completely natural question. And Peter answers that. So just to finish off the frame, we have the present trials of persecution sandwiched between the joy as a result of living hope and future hope. Peter characterizes trials and difficulty in our lives as four basic characteristics. They are brief. They're, though now for a little time, he says, it's a, it's a brief... Uh, the time is brief. And it's comforting for Peter to say that. He doesn't say, though now for 60 years... You know, you're going to be experiencing, experiencing these difficulties. He says, though now for a little time, compared to eternity, this is, like James says, a vapor of breath. That's how he compares our lives to eternity. Our life is like a puff of breath, and it's over. Eternity never ends. They are brief. They aren't coincidental. Rather providential. Coincidence is when something happens by chance. Providence is when something happens because God ordains the means and the ends for that to happen. Big difference. You're going through a difficulty right now and I don't doubt that you are. You're going, what you're going through is not coincidental. It's not an accident. It's providential. Thirdly, trials are difficult. They're not easy. They're not meant to be easy. So Peter uses the word grieved. You've been grieved, vexed. You're, you're perplexed. You're distressed. It's an emotional word. You should express frustration, inner agony. They're difficult. And fourthly, they come to us in a variety of forms. Not everybody experiences the same trials. We experience trials unique to us because God knows what to do uh, for our good. I'd just like to point back to Romans 8.28. All of us know this verse, and this is the proper context for that verse. All things work together 
for them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. Meaning all things, whether they are negative or positive, they are designed for our best interest. I'm getting into why does God permit a believer to suffer? Paraphrasing a commentator, gold is a temporary substance, and yet men take great care to purge it from all dross, meaning imperfections. How much more can we expect a fiery trial? That's a word or a phrase Peter uses in 1 Peter 4.12. Think it not strange. Don't think it's some kind of weird thing that's happening, happening to you if you experience one of these fiery trials, which is there to what? Test you. Test you. To test our faith in the unseen Christ. God has given us faith, and now He implements trials and persecutions and afflictions to purify it. To purify it. Why? Future, again. Future. That this faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or appearing of Jesus Christ. That's why. God doesn't just sit back, allow you to suffer, and somewhat enjoy it. No. God allows these things to happen because He has a much greater eternal purpose in mind. He wants perfect faith. And so He employs methods, namely trials, to perfect it. Paul writes in Romans 14.11, We must all stand before the judgment seat of God, not giving an account for our sins, but to be tested. Our faith will be examined. To the end that it might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fourthly and lastly, the operation of a living hope. Look at verse 8 and 9. Trials, uncomfortable, undesirable, make us miserable sometimes. Verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now we're looking ahead again. We've brought things, Peter has brought things back to the present. Here's what you're experiencing, here's why. Now put your focus back forward, upward, into the future. The audience had not personally known or even seen Jesus Christ. The writer of 1 Peter had known Jesus personally, was an eyewitness of the, the miracles, the power of Christ, had been blessed as well as criticized, to put it mildly, by Jesus Christ, had seen Him, him transfigured, in the glory of God on the mountain. Peter says, you have not seen Him, yet you love Him. How is that possible? Through the operation of faith. That's faith. We don't see Him, yet we love Him. You do not now see Him, yet you believe in Him. 
Faith causes us to live and function as though Christ is present with us. And this is not an illusion, as many would have us think. But we live as though Christ is present with us. Because He is. Not physically, but when we are saved. Conversion, when we are quickened, we become indwelt, not only by the Holy Spirit, but all three persons of the Trinity indwell us. That is why when you become saved, your ambitions change, your motivations change, your interests change, your tastes change, your attitude toward your sin changes. Why is it that one day you can go and sin and not feel guilty, and the next day you feel condemned, you feel guilty, you can't live with it, you have to get rid of it. That's one of the evidences of the indwelling of God. We begin to love what God loves, hate what God hates. That's part of sanctification. Which results in joy inexpressible and filled with glory. There is no way you can put to words the joy of the Christian. Why is it inexpressible? Because a Christian can be filled with joy even in these negative, dangerous circumstances. It doesn't make sense. There's no logical explanation. How can you be joyful when you could be dead tomorrow? Your head removed from your body by Nero's sword. And yet, here it is. And how can joy spring up within you because of something you can't see? That is the mystery of faith and hope. And yet, these characteristics of the Christian faith are essential and fundamental and part of every single Christian Obtaining the outcome of your faith. Here is that future tense spoken of as if it is already taking place. The salvation of your souls. The certainty of this salvation. When our regeneration comes to an end, our life pilgrimage is over. We are in the presence of God. And when we are reunited with our bodies in the resurrection, the first resurrection, and are ushered into the eternal state, the completion of salvation. Maybe you are here today, and you cannot identify with this, with these truths. Maybe you have gone to church for years. But you've never, ever been born again. Scripture tells us, Romans 6.23, All have sinned. Excuse me. The wages of sin is death. Our sin ushers us in the direction of death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have never been saved by the grace of Christ, think about your sin, think about the eternal consequences of sin, Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, Paul gives that invitation. 
Anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. You can be saved. You can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins as if it's a cancerous disease. Hate your sin. Flee to Christ. Submit to Him. Trust in Him alone. And you can also be a part of this incredible salvation. Let's close in prayer. God our Father, we are again extremely grateful. Father, you are alone wise, gracious, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We thank you for granting us repentance. We thank you for giving us this living hope. You've caused us to be born again. And you've begun this work in us. And you will bring it to completion. Father, we look forward with earnest expectation to the glory that will be revealed in us. Strengthen us. Grow us. Cause us to love you more every single day. Through your, by your glory, or for your glory, by your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your time.